Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Galatians 3, starting at verse 15. And the last time we looked at the Apostle Paul, and he's been making this case by salvation through faith, right? It's by grace, the gift of God, but it's through faith. The vehicle is faith. We believe and trust in what Christ did on the cross. He died for our sins, and we have salvation. It's an awesome thing. The promises of heaven, the afterlife. Um, the religionists in the Apostle Paul's day and the religionists today try to add to that salvation by grace through faith, but it's, it's meaningless. You know, the, he was ministering to some people, these Galatians, and he, you know, he, he tutored them and he brought them up in the faith, and the false teachers came and started teaching some weird doctrines, and he had to deal with that issue. So today we're going to look at the law's purpose. And, you know, if you miss a sermon, I would just encourage you to get it for free, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, on the podcast, uh, through the uh, internet, because there's a lot that happens here, and each successive Sunday, each chapter builds on the previous one. So I don't want you to be lost in that respect. But today, the, the title's message is The Law's Purpose. What is the purpose of the law? And even Christians today ask that question. Well, the Ten Commandments was in the Old Testament. Well, how does that affect me? Well, do I have to follow the Ten Commandments? Am I bound by the Ten Commandments? These are really good questions. What is the law? Is the law just the Ten Commandments, or is it other things? So these and other questions I'm going to answer for you this morning. Um, and again, a lot of Christians today have these questions, and hopefully as we go through what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, we'll have a better understanding of the law, what it can do, what it can't do, and what its relation is to faith. So let's jump in. Verse 3. Excuse me, chapter 3, verse 15. The Apostle Paul says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds. This is God speaking to Abraham in Genesis. As of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect, the promise of salvation, all the way back in Genesis. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So we see that this goes back again into, you know, listen, the Bible is a commentary on itself. The, the New Testament reveals what God put forth in the Old Testament for those that, you know, the people back then in the Old Covenant didn't completely understand. The New Testament is a revelation of the Old Testament. So the Apostle Paul goes back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, and he argues the legally binding covenant. Again, more proof text for salvation by grace through faith. So A, the legally binding covenant between God and Abraham. Um, you know, we, we look at that today. You know, whether you look at the Old Testament and their jurisprudence system, they had civil laws. So if two people signed a contract and they said, I'll agree to do this, you agreed to do that, it couldn't be annulled, it couldn't be taken away. And even in our jurisprudence system, we have the same thing. So if you sign a contract with another party and you decide to renege on your uh, promises, what happens is that person can take you to court and sue you. And they'll probably win for damages. So we have this understanding, this, this covenant, this contract, this agreement, that it can't be annulled or abrogated. In other words, it can't be done away with once the contract is signed. So what did God do? He constrained himself to this agreement with Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to do these things for you. I'm going to bring the Messiah through your line, through your seed, right? Through your progeny. And God, when he says something, he always keeps his promises. He can't fail. But again, what was the agreement? Verse 16 tells us this, and we covered this last Sunday, Genesis 12, 3. God said to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Remember, this is before Christ, right? He's, he's, God's always speaking about the future. Boy, what's going on now and what's going to happen in the future? In Genesis 22, he says to Abraham, 
He goes a little bit further. He says, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I look at this as, and, and we see this in our own life, it's called unfolding revelation. You know, God tells Abraham, get up, get out of, you know, the Chaldeans or the Chaldeans and go to this place I'm going to show you. It's far away. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of details, but we'll talk as you're walking through these areas and I'm going to talk to you about your life and your children and all these things that are going to happen. And, you know, we can see that as Christians in our life, this unfolding revelation. You know that God will send us somewhere. He'll give us an idea of something and it's, maybe it's vague. It's something he wants us to do. He wants us to put feet on our faith. He wants us to get up and go and act on what he's showing us through prayer or through what the Bible says. And then as time goes on, maybe weeks, months, years, he'll fine-tune that plan. It reminds me of a sculpture. You know, you have a big lump of clay, and you're watching the sculpture and chisel, 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 and you see something that looks like a head and shoulders. Well, he's making a, a sculpture of a person. Sculptures, you keep watching them, chisel, 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 the eyes, the nose, the ears. Oh, I know that person. You see what I'm talking about? That's an analogy for unfolding revelation. So God does this with Abraham. You know, he had a lot of plans for Abraham and his seed. Um, And he has a lot of plans for us too. And God is faithful. It's the same way that God spoke to Abraham and blessed him, he can bless us as well. You've got to trust him. So, what's going to happen through Abraham's seed, through his posterity, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's the big deal? Well, because eventually Jesus Christ was going to be born. And in that human line, God interrupted it where Jesus Christ would be fully God and fully man. He would die for the sins of the world, both Jews and Gentiles. That's really good news. We've been enjoying that good news as Christians for the past 2,000 years. Okay? But at the time, it was just a glimmer of light that God was revealing to Abraham and his people. So, he says in verse 16, to Abraham, to your seed... Um, singular, not plural, okay, not seeds. In other words, God was going to bless the world through Abraham, not through the Jewish line, seeds, but through the Jewish Messiah. So there's this specificity in the scripture. And I just have to get this out of the way as far as a lot of the supporting evidence. Matthew 1 traces Christ's lineage all the way back to Abraham from Joseph, who was Jesus' legally adoptive father, Things were very different back then. You know, if you, uh, if you were a man and you came into the life of a, of, of a woman with a child and you married her, you would adopt that child. And that child would have all the rights of you as the father. So Jesus was fully God, fully man. Mary didn't have a man, right? God did this supernaturally. But when Joseph came into her life, he took, you know, uh, Christ as a, as a baby and as a boy, he took care of him as a as a, an adoptive father. Luke 3 traces Jesus' lineage back from Abraham um, to, actually, from Mary to Abraham, okay, and also back to Adam and Eve. Why is that significant? Because in Genesis 3.15, another prophecy. It says that the seed of the woman would deliver a crushing blow to Satan at the cross. And that's what Jesus did. That long line. Mary has Jesus, no... Um, interference from a, a biological male. God does it supernaturally. Jesus, is, he grows up. He, you know, he does miracles. He's fully God, fully man, and he dies on the cross. And Satan now has no power over us anymore. That's really important to understand. See, sometimes we live, you know, there was this, <laughs> there's in, in other countries, like if, if you have a, and I know I've talked about this before, you take a baby elephant and you put like a rope you know, like a leash, and you tie him to like some stick in the ground. And he tugs a little, and he, you know, he doesn't, he can't really go anywhere, so he gets used to, he's on the leash. Well, the elephant grows and becomes mighty and gains hundreds of pounds, thousands of pounds. And he still allows that leash to hold him, although it really can't hold him. I see Christians that way sometimes, you know, in that they're being lied to by the enemy. They're being deceived into believing that they can't. I can't. I can't get past this. I can't break through this. I can't. And it really is not true. You know what I'm saying? What Jesus did on the cross, you know, not only did he give us entrance into eternal life, but he also gave us the ability to do things we normally couldn't do. And that's amazing. That's amazing. And more Christians need to read the Bible and see those promises and receive that encouragement. You can. You really can. With you and Christ, you can do anything. That's the truth. 
Verse 17, he says that the promise of salvation was through Abraham and not the law. Again, what's the context? The context is the Galatians were being deceived into believing that they had to keep all these points of the law when they were already saved by grace. Apostle Paul saying, no, that's ridiculous. Again, religionists do that. Religionists do that today. They add burdens. Who did Jesus have the biggest problem with during his earthly ministry? The religious leaders. Because they put so much on the people that they burdened them. And Jesus wanted to relieve them of that burden. You don't even have to keep the law. You have, you know... Trust in Christ. Now, I have to say this because, you know, people are in here and they're in different levels. Some, maybe you're hearing the Bible for the first time. What is the law? Well, the law is, somebody counted them, I didn't, but is some really good information on the law. There's literally hundreds of laws in the Old Testament, right? Don't murder, don't steal, do this, do that. And apparently there's supposedly right around 613. There's over 600 of these commands and laws, etc. Some of them were criminal. Like, you know, we still, our criminal justice system is, you know, founded on don't kill and don't steal, right? Those are still important things. They come from God. Some of them are civil, how people deal with people, but in a non-criminal fashion. And some of them are ceremonial, how the priests would go into the temple and deal with things, you know, that would please God. So you had this, this compilation over 600 laws. The Ten Commandments I would call like a microcosm of the entire law. The first four commandments were our relationship to God, how we don't offend him and don't uh, abandon him and don't you know, worship other gods. And then you have the other six are our relationship to people. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie about people. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, you can, the Ten Commandments are just a really nice nifty package of an idea of how we should be treating God and how we should be treating each other. So that's the law in in various aspects. Okay, Verse 18, the inheritance in Christ is either, he says, of the law or of the promise of God. It can't be both. God gave salvation by the promise, and that promise he gave all the way back to Abraham regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What does the law do? Is it shows us our failings and the fact that we can't keep the law. Embedded in the law is instructions to us that tells us you try to keep these things and you just can't because we're human, we're flesh, we're, we're sinners. You know, we normally want to do our own thing and, and not necessarily enjoy God's good laws for us. They keep us out of trouble, really, if you think about it. God's not a cosmic killjoy. He, he's concerned for us. He's concerned about his relationship with us. And sometimes we see his rules as something that, you know, like kids, you know, rebelling against their parents, okay? The promise, on the other hand, gives us hope. The promise is better. Why? Because if we have to follow the law, then we have to depend on ourselves because the law was already given by God, okay? The promise of salvation is much better because we know we're going to break the law, but the promise tells us that we can still be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And why is it better is because... The, the promise depends on God, okay? Now, I think I'm a pretty reliable person. However, if I had to choose between relying on myself and relying on God, I'm going to choose relying on God because I make mistakes. I forget things. Things slip my mind. You know, I get distracted. I write something down. I lose the piece of paper. You know what I'm saying? And I hope it wasn't something important. But God, when he says, I'm going to do this, I don't worry about my salvation because he's promised me I'm going to heaven, and that's big. How long do we live on this earth? Maybe in our 80s, 90s, I just was looking at a, something, a story about a, a 104-year-old twins. But they're really close to the end. There is an expiration date. I hate to burst your bubble um, regarding the human lifespan. However, heaven is for eternity. So I feel really good about that. I trust God. I believe his promises. Verse 19, he says, and these are the last few verses we're really going to cover for this morning. The Apostle Paul says, so then what purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed, right, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could truly have given life, 
truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confirmed all under sin. Excuse me, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I'll stop there for a moment. So the second part of this argument, which is a very logical argument, is what's the purpose of the law? Now, today people think, well, I could keep the Ten Commandments. You're only talking about a small part of the law. And even if you really could, which I really doubt that, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you think about sin, your mind becomes a Judas. And I'm paraphrasing. Your mind betrays you. So even if you're not doing it with your hands and feet, you could be doing it up here. Right? And it's part of who we are. So we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot keep the Ten Commandments. But verse 19 is a very great transitional verse to the rest of the chapter. He says, so then what... Now, Paul knew the answer. But Paul would, you know, he would be the person who is making the argument against him. And he would be the person who would be answering the argument. Really clever, very beautiful, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So he says, what purpose does the law serve? Well, I look at three things. Number one, he wrote, because it was added for transgression. God, at some point, gave the law. The people were sinning. They were murdering each other. They were taking each other's spouses. They were worshiping uh, idols and stuff. And, and God had to, as the expression goes, lay down the law, right? He needed to show people, this is wrong. God's offended by it. I saw an expression recently, and it said, in this country today, we're afraid of offending everyone except God. And it's kind of true, right? Some people think, out of sight, out of mind. He's not tangible, it's not my problem. But one day, we'll stand before God. Second thing about the law, it was, keyword until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Seed, progeny, children, great, 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 great. See what I'm saying? So seed is a word that means somewhere along that person's line, a person would be born, and it's, again, speaking about Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, but he would come from that line. Until is very important. It's a transitional declaration. In other words, the law was in the interim. It was in the interim until the Messiah came. Okay? We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Three, a lot he says about angels and mediation. Now, this was an interesting concept. God gave the law to the people, but the people saw some things and saw some miracles, and they're like, you know what, Moses, you go up the hill. You talk to him. You know, we're kind of a little bit of, of afraid. So it was God, there was angels involved, there was Moses, and then it was the people, there was mediation. However, when God gave the promise, let's put the law aside, when God gave the promise of salvation and the Messiah to Abraham, he did it directly. He did it directly. Okay? Verse 21 he says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So typical Pauline style, he is on both sides of the debate. He's the polemicist and he's the apologist. In other words, he's the one repeating the falsehoods from the false teachers and then he takes that argument and says scripturally and according to God why that's not true. So is the law against the promises of God? No. They're two different things. If obedience, or excuse me, if salvation could come through the law, then God would have made a law that would have saved everybody. Okay? Don't sin. is not saving anybody. It's just really a mirror. It's a reflection. It's a tool. So, tools. Tools have to be used sometimes um, situation-specific. So I have this really cool chain, so I actually brought it in once, did it, I didn't really start it up because of the smoke things, but <laughs> it's, I love my chainsaw. It was a refurbished. I've had it for almost 15 years, and thanks, thanks to that awesome Makita 18-inch refurbished chainsaw, it's never failed me. It's always started it up. I cut up wood, and I put it wood, my wood-burning stove in. On a day like today, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to stoke up the fire, and I'm going to be warm. Right? So, so that's a tool. However, there's certain things I can't use that tool for. If I can't find my toothbrush, I can't start up the chainsaw and brush my teeth, right? Pastor Joe, what happened to you? I couldn't find my toothbrush. Okay, so the point is that tools are agent-specific. And a chainsaw is an awesome thing, but it's only 
to certain specificity, okay? Now, what is the lawful use of the law? The law is to reveal. The law, you can say, is a spiritual mirror to expose spiritual dirt, and that dirt is sin. It shows us the sin. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't clean it. It doesn't wash it. The only thing that can wash away that sin and take that blemish away from us is Christ and what he did on the cross. Okay? So, if I do an example, okay, this is a mirror. Now, for those of you who are in a hurry this morning and came late, now you can take a look at yourself and, and see how you did. <laughs> so, but what does this mirror do? In the, in the real world, or in the temporal world, scratch that, in the temporal world, it reveals. It shows us what we look like. The, the law is a mirror. It shows us what we look like. But it goes past skin deep, and it goes into the heart. So I could stand up here and put up, a, put up a good show and tell you I'm really perfect, which I would never do, especially not with my wife sitting back there. <laughs> but, uh, but the truth is, when I read the Ten Commandments and I read the law, I realize that I am a sinner. I'm flawed. Now this, <laughs> I didn't realize how cold it was this morning, so I went outside and I was looking for some dirt. This is dirt. Okay? This is real dirt. And I had to chop it up and put it in the microwave because it wouldn't, it wouldn't break up this morning. <laughs> I'm going to try not to make a mess here. So if you look at this dirt and I rub it on my face, right, you can see without me putting up the mirror that I have unblemished. Now I can take this mirror and I can see, whoa, I'm blemished. However, if I take this mirror and I start rubbing my face, It's just going to make it worse, isn't it? It's not going to fix it. By the way, don't try this at home. Especially not before church, you'll look silly. So the mirror does its job. It just shows me that there's something wrong with me. Physically, I can see there's something wrong with me, but spiritually, I also know there's something wrong with me because that's what the law does. Enter the blood of Christ, represented by this red rag. That can't fix my problem, but this can And it does a very thorough job. And when God sees me, he sees the perfection of Christ. Amen? Did I get it all? So, you know, it's it's sometimes such a cool thing to use props, to use images, to use things that really make sense. You know, the law is limited. And people will tell you today, you can go to different churches, some really awesome churches in the area, and some will tell you, they'll give you, a friend of mine's in a different denomination, and he, he had come here from there, and he said, we have what's called the book of order. And there's all these rules that you have to follow. I grew up in Catholicism. I had a catechism. And I think in some respects, it's bigger than the Bible. So what happens is we start to get all these things piled up on us, and salvation is very simple. Trust in Christ as a Lord and Savior. Because you know what? It's actually insulting to the Lord Jesus when he did something so amazing that we couldn't do and we say, well, I'm going to make it better by adding stuff. It's insulting. It's really insulting. In all the years I've been married and I've given my wife various gifts over the years, she's never taken out her purse and tried to give me some money for it. I would be insulted nor have I tried to do that with her. Because it was love, it was something that we gave out of our heart, and it cheapens it by getting something in return. So consider that. Consider that. Verse 22. But the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Scripture has confined. In other words, and and I go into my Greek because sometimes... You know, it's my job to go into the paraphrased Bibles. It's my job to go into the Greek because sometimes I read it and I've got to read it a few times myself. I mean, I basically have read the entire Bible and I understand it. But there's certain verses that I'm like, I've got I to gotta pray about this. I've got to look it up. I've got it because I'm not getting it. So the scripture is concluded. The scripture has declared. 
that all are under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ be given to those who believe. See, sin is our jailer. You know, before Christ, we're all on death row. And sometimes, and if I could look at this in a spiritual sense, we're behind the bars. Sometimes it's comfortable. Sometimes it's padded. Sometimes it's climate control. And we're jailed in sin before Christ. And there's no mirror. But you put up this outside of the bars, you can see between me and the mirror are bars. I never saw that before. You know, it's sad that when you try to talk to people about Jesus and the freedom in Christ, some don't want to hear it. And in the world, my wife and I actually, for many years, would do prison ministry. She would go to see the ladies in the pods, and I would see the, the men. And what was really sad is there was a percentage of those incarcerated that were what I would call institutionalized. And they would be done maybe two years, and they would get out. And they were so used to everything being done for them, they didn't feel they could live on their own. And they would come out of prison, purposely commit a crime, and they would get put right back into prison, which is where they wanted to be. You know what's really sad? There's a lot of people in this world that are institutionalized spiritually. You can tell them about the Ten... And I've done this. I've used the Ten Commandments. I've talked about what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Did you ever think this? Come on. Who's, who's never gotten angry at somebody? Well, those thoughts could turn into, I want to hurt that person. That's, you've broken God's law. Wanting to hurt somebody else made in his image. We can't keep the law 100%. And I've had people say to me, you know what? Listen, I'm making money. I'm doing good. I'm not interested. They're institutionalized spiritually. And it's a sad thing. Because sin does jail us. And sin will put us into a place, if we're not believers, where we have to stand before God and be judged for those sins. I don't want that for me. And I don't want that for anybody here. So if you're here for the first time, consider that. Consider those things. So this is what we have. You know, the world is, listen, you can, there's some articles, that the titles I can't even read from the pulpit. Such horrible things happening in the world. And I submit to you, it's just getting worse and worse. People are finding more and interesting ways to torment each other, to divide each other, you know. Last few verses, verse 23. But before faith came, right, before this promise, before the Messiah, before we believed in him, Jesus Christ, salvation, let's go back. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the Lord was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What does the law do? The law shows us that we're sinners. The law shows us that there's a deficit. The law shows me before Christ that I, have, I need a Savior. I can't deal with this on my own. I can't play Russian roulette and hope that when I die, God listens to my persuasive argument and He lets me into heaven. It doesn't work like that. Listen, we can play those games in courtrooms and in the media and spin, spin, spin. But it doesn't work with God. You see, he's all-knowing, he's, all he's omniscient, he's full of wisdom and full of goodness and righteousness, and we're not. So the Apostle Paul makes one of the best parallels and understanding of what the law really is. He really tackles this from many angles. And I really believe that some of you this morning are going to say, you know what, I'm, I'm armed. When I go out into the world, I actually, this is going to help me. Because you filled in some of the blanks the Apostle Paul did that I didn't know. So he says that the law was a tutor until Christ. Now, the Greek word is pedagogos, where in the English we get the word pedagogue. Right? There's a lot of words in the English that come from the, the biblical Greek. In English, it says tutor or schoolmaster. Now, I have to take you to the Roman Empire. We're going to go backwards a few thousand years. Because it's not until you understand what a pedagogue, a pedagogos did in the Roman Empire... The word tutor and schoolmaster doesn't do it justice. That's why I love to bring the culture into my teaching. He's like, oh, the light bulb goes off. American culture, Roman culture, very different. A lot of years separating us. The pedagogos was a non-biological custodian or steward of a child. 
Now, in the Roman Empire, there was slavery. So a family can often buy somebody and make that person take care of their kid. Okay? So the person was often a slave, and they were just doing their job. What did the pedagogos do? They kept the child from youthful lust. They kept the child from harming themselves. They made sure that the child went to school, did their homework, handed it, just like, <laughs> right? Parents should have been doing that, but this is what they hired. And Paul, Paul captured this and said, everybody knows what a pedagogos is, so I'm going to use an example. The pedagogos would discipline the child, corporal punishment without emotion. It's not his kid. When the child became a functional adult, the pedagogos was, was obsolete. Now, let's make this parallel and compare it to the law. Let's, let's compare this. The law does what? Number one, it makes us take a cold, hard look at ourselves without emotion or feeling you've sinned. This is your punishment. That's what the law does. Even the law today, it has no mercy. You better hope that you're before a jury because maybe they'll say, well, we don't think that. But the law has no mercy. It is what it is. Number two, the law tells us of, a, of the discipline we'll reap if we don't follow the law without emotion. This is your judgment. Three, the law keeps us in check, but it can't save ourselves from ourselves. Right? It's that pedagogos. And this relationship was for a limited time. And four, with the law, there was always a glimmer of something better down the road, thanks to God's promises. Salvation by grace through faith, so much better. And once established, there was no more need for the law. Okay? So a person in that culture, once the pedagogos was done, because they're an adult now, they become a young adult, they get married, they have kids, Nobody would ever say, oh, life's too stressful. I don't want to be with my wife and my kids. I want to go back to the pedagogos and suck my thumb. Okay? Right? It's like today, a 50-year-old man who's got a wife and kids and says, I want to go back and live with mommy. In Italian, we'd say, you're a juch. What's the matter with you? You're a big juch. You know what I'm saying? But... <laughs> There's, there's a lot of them. I try to find the ones that are, that are clean, you know. <laughs> but grown up in an Italian home. Similar to the law, though, the, the pedagogos regulated life, but they didn't give life. Isn't that amazing? This is all inspired by the Holy Spirit. The law prepared us for our maturity in Christ. And once that happens, we don't go back to the law. I mean, I think that's probably one of the best arguments for this. Now, even the rich young ruler, if you remember, I, I covered this in Matthew 19. The rich young ruler, he was young, he, was, he, had, he had every, in that world, in that time, he had everything. He was at the top echelon. And he came to Jesus and, and he says, I kept the Ten Commandments from my youth. It's a little prideful, okay? And, and of course, he's speaking about just outwardly. And of course, he had a very sheltered life, so maybe it was easy not to deal with a lot of the things that regular people dealt with. But it's interesting, he comes to Jesus and he's still unfulfilled. You see, even in his, in his thinking that he kept ten, ten Commandments, he goes, what do I still lack, Jesus? He goes to Jesus, what, there's got to be something else out there. Because he wasn't fulfilled by supposed keeping of the Ten Commandments. Jesus sees his problem because he's fully God, and he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now, would he say that to every wealthy person? No. This isn't a redistribution. Listen, don't put today's politics and culture into the Bible. This isn't a socialist redistribution program. What he's saying to the guy is, you have a problem. You worship money, and it's hurting your spiritual life. That's the problem. Jesus put his finger, as he often did, on the sore. He said, this is the issue. So the guy was probably, maybe not outwardly, but in his heart, he violated the first and second and last commandments. He was covetous. He liked stuff. And he put riches before God. That's just my take on it. And what happens? He can't deal with the truth, so he leaves Jesus and he walks away dejected. feel sorry for him, really. He came to Jesus with, with a problem. Jesus fixes the problem, but he didn't want that solution. So even a person who thought he could keep the Ten Commandments was still left unfulfilled. There's nothing that can fill us like the grace and the love of God like the gift of salvation. 
And once you experience, you'll understand it. Before I was saved, I heard a lot about it, and I saw people who really enjoyed it, and, 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 and I'm like, wow. And I fancied it, and I wasn't ready. I had too many other awful things pulling me backwards. Eventually, I became a Christian, and then I look back on my other life and go, what a dummy. <laughs> I can't believe I waited so long for this. What was the holdup? It's fear. It's fear of the unknown. It's, you know, you just don't know. But I tell you why, I've lived on both sides, and there is nothing that can fill you like the love of God, like the grace of God. There's nothing in this world. I don't care how much you have. Saddest thing I think when I see as a pastor is those who, similar to the rich young ruler, who they're in quicksand. They're up to their necks, just their hands are sticking out. And you say, listen, I want to throw you a line. Okay, but it's attached to Jesus Christ. Oh, no, I don't want now. I'll wait for something better. And they're sinking. And some of them are sinking in their own success. You know? I'm, so many people, when I, I, I witness to them, so what was it? You hit rock bottom. I really didn't hit rock bottom. I was just unfulfilled. And I just took the line that God was throwing to me. Some people do it through rock bottom, and that's awesome. And some people do it because life's just not fulfilling. People do it for a lot of reasons. But um, many today, they're in, again, they're spiritually institutionalized. They don't want to take that rope that's attached to Jesus Christ. So let me just say this before we close is that, so, some could say, well, Pastor Joe, again, it almost sounds like, without really knowing the whole entire Bible, it almost sounds like there's something wrong with the law. Is the law bad? The answer is no. Now, there are people out there who are, you know, number one, they're called antinomianists. It's a big word. It just means someone who's against the law. Or a person who's libertine, whose basic root of that word is freedom. And what these people do is they have this misconception and once they become Christians, they can do whatever they want. That makes no sense. The Apostle Paul said, well, if I die to sin, how could I live, continue living a lifestyle of sin? How could I continue to live to sin because I died in sin? Right? Because when sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And Paul's saying, so then should we sin? Should we continue in sin? He goes, no, that's ridiculous. That's a real misunderstanding of what the Scripture says. I had a, um, a crew, uh, a guy, two guys come to my house to do some work, and I'm, of course I was witnessing to them, and I was talking, to the, talking about the Lord, and he, he had an impasse, and I had to get past that impasse. He goes, you know, a lot of people in my families are deacons. He goes, and they're always getting drunk, and they're doing bad things when they're getting drunk. They're behaving as libertines or antinomianists. He was very turned off, and he didn't see a good example of Christianity. So, two, two scriptures come to mind, and then we'll, we'll close it. Jeremiah 31, if we could turn to that. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Now remember, this is the Old Testament, a few centuries before Christ. I think almost every Old Testament book somehow speaks about the coming Messiah. That's how important it was to the Jewish people. So this is pre-Christ, Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah is prophesying this new covenant, this new agreement, this new contract, which we're under. Verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according, remember, to the Jew first and then the Gentile, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Why would God make another covenant? Because his people broke the first covenant. They destroyed it. So in order to save them, he had to bring another covenant, and that was in the Messiah. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No more shall every man say to his neighbor, and every man to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for, for I will forgive them for their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember their sin I will remember no more. So Jeremiah prophesies to a, to a future time, a real glorious time, where your brother, your neighbor, your sister, your mother won't say, Know the law. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't kill. Put that down. That's not yours. 
because the prophecy is that the law is in our hearts. You see, I don't want to steal. I don't want to be a bad witness, and I don't want to disappoint God. I don't want to steal from people. That's just me. You know, I don't want to lie. I want to be as truthful as possible. Before I was a Christian, I couldn't care less. I did whatever I could to make sure I was fine with, you know, that I could survive in this world. Now, I trust God with my survival, and I don't want to, you know, this is God's heart. All these laws are good laws. If I'm hurting other people, Jesus said they were, you know, they're made in, in, in God's image too. He loves them too. Why would you do something like that? So we, we want to please God. Last scripture, John 14. These are the Lord Jesus' words. John 14, 23 through 24. And this is key. Going back to the example of the person who went to my house, who did some work, and they were talking about their families who were deacons. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So this is amazing. Jesus didn't say, If you love me, put a Christian fish on your back bumper. He didn't say, If you love me, just go to Christian school and Christian college. And these things aren't bad. If you love me, put scripture placards all over your house. And these are all good things, but that's not what he said. He said, if you love me, you will obey me. Right? Because what is the greatest commandment, Jesus said? To love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Do we know how to love God? And with that, he goes, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, did Jesus have commands? Of course he did. Love people. If you're Christians, you should love each other, he said. Because the world, when they see, will know you by your love for each other. Is that such a hard thing for the Lord to ask us? It's not always easy to do. But if we really are walking with the Lord and, and drawing on His strength, we can do these things. Again, nobody has, I don't have 100% success rate in anything. You know, the Lord is, is good to me and He's merciful and I, and I want to do and I want to please Him. It's kind of funny because, you know, I have a lot of discussions. My son now is 16. He'll be 17 in a few months. And... It's great. It's just, it's a different phase of life. I, it was so awesome when he was a baby and he was so cute and cheeks and just so much fun. And then every stage is just something, it's just a blessing. I only got one kid. He's awesome. And he'll ask me questions. And I don't say, he'll, he'll ask me sometimes, well, why are you doing this? And I don't say, because God's always on my back. And if I don't do this, he's going to smack me. I say, because I... I say, son, because I want to please God. You know, that's my attitude. I, he's not on my back. And when I do something wrong, he forgives me. But I want to please him. He'll even say, and he sees things that happen. He's, not, he's a very perceptive kid. He doesn't always use words, but he's l watching and he's listening. And he'll say, you know, somebody is constantly doing something to you and, and just, and he'll say, well, why are you talking to that person? You know, and I'll say, because God's called us to forgive. Now, I'm not the split-second forgiver, so I just want you to know that. You know, the deeper the wound, sometimes the longer it takes to forgive, but I work on it. And, and I try to be a good example to my son. I don't want him to grow up like the guy who was working on my house and say, I don't want to be a Christian. My father's a big hypocrite. I don't want to do that. I want to show him a relationship, a walk with the Lord. That's my goal. I only got one kid. I want to make sure he gets to heaven. So, and that's a good thing because, because he's young and impressionable and he holds me accountable with his youngness and his impressionability. You know, I'm not afraid to have him here and serve and talk to people. I don't monitor what he says. You know, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm setting a good example in the home because I love God. Not because I'm trying to put something up for my son or for you guys. It's got to be a walk, folks. If it's anything else, it's going to be a burden. It's going to be another religious burden in life. So the law's purpose, if we can put it all together, the law's, the law's purpose in a spiritual sense is this. We look into the law, even as Christians, we can still look into the law and say, I don't measure up. But Jesus died for our sins. And Jesus gives us the strength to do a better job the next time. The law is a mirror. It shows us the true state of a person. It shows us that sinful flesh cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The law leads a person to realize that they are hopeless 
without a Savior to save them from their sins. What's the hope? The silver lining, the light at the end of the tunnel, or any other cliche you want to come up with, is the promise. The law has its purpose. But the promise, from the foundations of the world, our Father knew. Our Father in heaven knew that we were going to sin, and he needed to save us from our sins. That promise started all the way in Genesis 3 with Eve. Right? Adam and Eve both messed up. And he said, it's okay. Through the seed of the woman, that, that one's going to deliver a crushing blow to Satan's head. Right? They all thought the demons, when Jesus was on that cross, we finally got rid of them. When they realized that his shed blood and our belief in him afterwards would, would, would propel us and give us entrance into the kingdom and be reconciled back to our Father, they realized they messed up. They didn't have the full picture, but God knew what he was doing. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son to die for our sins, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the adoption as children. Therefore, we can cry out, the Bible says, Abba. And that word is translated daddy. It's an awesome thing, that closeness. And you know, some of us grew up and our dads weren't perfect. Some of us don't know who our dads are. And that's, it, it, there's, there's a little bit of a learning curve, and it's okay. But God is not like that. God's not going to abandon us. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to abuse us. He's not going to make us promises that he can't keep. We can call him daddy and be vulnerable because he loves us and he has our best interests at heart. So whether it's to the Galatians or the New Jerseyans, right, the way to heaven is through the sun, nothing more, nothing less. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.